Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Ruck. A quick one-word Q&A to kick us off. Peter, what was the team of the weekend? Argentina. And Jonesy, where do you wish you'd most been for your rugby this weekend? Argentina. <laughs> Rob. Go on in, ask, ask me again. And Jonesy, where do you wish you'd been for your rugby this weekend? Australia. Correct. England, a, a lead in Group A of the Autumn Nations Cup. That's pretty exciting, isn't it, Steve? No, I'm not excited by any part of what you said, or by the game. I'm absolutely categorically underwhelmed by the Autumn Nations Cup. Okay, well, after that ray of sunshine, um, we'll introduce ourselves properly. I'm Owen Slot. Uh, You've already heard from two scholars of the rugby media. One of them is well known to this parish, Steve Jones. He's like your next door neighbour. The other, Peter O'Reilly, is like your favourite cousin, who you're hoping will fly in to join you for Christmas, family weekends and those rare occasions where the All Blacks lose two on the bounce. Uh, What we're all struggling with is the problem of, on the one hand, wanting to thrill to the international rugby the Autumn Nations Cup is giving us, delighting in a big sporting occasion to lift us in these troubled times, but on the other hand, knowing that not very deep down, it's just not been very good. Someone wrote of the Autumn Nations Cup that the opening stages have been completely lacking in the true animal intensity, class and hunger of the real thing. And the best marketeers in the world, and whoever they are, they haven't arrived in rugby, would do brilliantly to persuade you otherwise. Now, who wants to put their hand up for writing that? It has to be Steve. <laughs> Modesty's always been my watchword. I won't be commenting on him. Yeah, well, sadly, it's, it's um, hard to disagree. Peter, uh, from your perspective, covering uh, the game from Dublin... Uh, watching the Ireland-Wales uh, game at the weekend. Are we just a team of miserableists over here? You have to wonder what people's expectations were for this tournament. I mean, I, it was always a, a stopgap. I was always thinking that well, we're, we're hoping that maybe in, in 12 months' time we'll have a, a proper Nations Cup. We're hoping that this is just a, is a one-off, a stopgap. So my expectations weren't particularly high. It wasn't... It wasn't the worst game of rugby. It was described somewhere uh, as, as being a wretched contest. In the third quarter, and the result was in doubt. So while, while Wales are 
far off what they, where they need to be and where they once were. It wasn't the worst entertainment. We weren't expecting it to be a tip-top thing. It was it was something that was going to fill a gap. And maybe we have to all maybe tailor our expectations a little bit. Jonesy, are you persuaded by that at all? Absolutely not. Not even There's a reasonable man on this podcast, Jonesy. Listen to him. Look, we all know it was meant to be have fans. And that's, what, that's why it was put on. You can't just... It, whatever these things sound like... Uh, look, Peter's vision of a... Southern Hemisphere thing is 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 better. At least there may be fans by then. But as 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 football are finding, they've just got a Nations Cup, and the interest in that is derisory as well. Just getting some teams together for something that's brand new doesn't automatically make it any good, and doesn't appeal to the players. And it's just another cross for them to bear. England Island will be reasonable. I guarantee it won't feel anything remotely like a proper Six Nations game. We needed France and Fiji to be great, and it didn't even exist. So uh, France-Scotland will be better. It'll, it, it will get better, but um, at the moment, anyone who thinks that it, it was any good is talking marketing ease. Do you think that we're being too tainted by the, the absence of fans, which is no one's fault? Because uh, England putting six tries on Georgia is uh, hardly an achievement and it wasn't very easy on the eye. But if you'd had 82,000 people giving you some background noise and cheering England on, etc., it, it wouldn't have felt such a dud that it did. Absolutely. No question about it. There wasn't a crowd there. And I'm finding it, don't know about you or you know, Pete, but I'm finding it worse and worse, not better and better. I still haven't got over Exeter playing so magnificently and winning the European Cup with no crowd and no fans. I mean, no family. I mean, actually, probably what I feel most down about is the lack of fans and the lack of people celebrating and families and friends. Maybe it's not the rugby, but, you know, Twickenham... Uh, it's not a fantastically atmospheric place, but when there's only 14 of us on the whole of the east side, it becomes positively spooky. It was like a hammer horror. For goodness sake, get some fans back. They all want to come. Even if it's only 100, let's get some representation there. Pete, do you think that, that part of the problem is that we've got a group of teams that aren't really hitting hit, hitting their top form yet? I mean, England sort of tell us that they are, but they've only played Italy and Georgia so far. Ireland seem to a beat sort of um, in, in search of their soul again, and Wales are, are clearly completely um, lost the plot. Well, uh, I can understand why England supporters would be underwhelmed having to ha- had to sit through the Georgia game, but I think there's enough intrigue to keep us interested. We have to put the fact that the fans can't be there to one side. It's There's nothing we can do about it. There's intrigue in Wales because they've, they've lost... Six games on the trot. People are wondering what's going on in the background, whether Wayne Pivak can hold on to his to his, his job. Scotland, I think, are on the up, even though they, they didn't win as, as well as they hoped to in Florence. They've got some new players coming through the jock box, as they've been called. I think, I, you know, I think our, from an Irish point of view, we would look ahead to, say, next year's Six Nations or the next time we play Scotland and, and wonder whether, you know, how big a contest that's going to be, you know, if, if uh, they're a team to worry about. And in Ireland, we're still in a transition phase. We have a newish coaching team and we are still in the immediate sort of post-Joe Schmidt era. And there are new players coming into the team, potentially uh, a new way of, uh, a slightly different way of playing. So there's enough, there's enough intrigue. Plus, of course, then this weekend you're looking at... And the last time I think I was on the show, Ireland were about to host England at the Aviva. And this was February 2019. And the question, Slotty, you were asking me was, 
is there any way Ireland can lose? And since then, we uh, Ireland have lost three games to England on the trot. One of them, a real humiliation, admittedly only a pre-World Cup warm-up game, but you know, a 50-point drubbing at Twickenham. And they've, ta- they've been beaten up three times in a row by England. So this game, regardless of whether there are going to be people out there, is huge for the self-esteem of this of Andy Farrell and his his uh, his team. So there's a lot a lot riding on on what happens on Saturday from an Ireland point of view. Not so much the result as just the fact of whether they can whether they can stand up to England physically and overcome or get over what's what's happened the last few times, which has been it's been harrowing for them. So it's a it's a massive game for for uh, for Ireland this Saturday. Jonesy, if Peter O'Reilly's really not been on this programme since February 2019, then presumably we have to have a word with the management, don't we? I mean, well, it's just, it's just ceaseless pay demands. <laughs> it's because he costs too much. Yeah, it's unbelievable. He, he wanted to fly over on, on the first class and be put up at the, at the Carlton Highland. Oh, sorry, that's in Edinburgh. Do you know what? It, it, all right, that is good. That that is good. There's pressure on Ireland because uh, they were beaten up. That, that that's good. That gives the game some spice. What also gives it some spice is the line we were fed by Eddie Jones, Stotty, after Saturday, and I didn't realise he was doing it at the time. But he said, "Oh, of course, boys were brilliant today. Uh, this great scrummaging team, Georgia. We had to quell them up front, and that was an excuse a for not being very good up front either." and B, for doing absolutely nothing around the field uh, in a really poor performance. And I swallowed that line just as, just as well as everybody. Georgia are not a great scrummaging team. They were, but none of their great scrummagers were playing on, on Saturday, and they had nowhere else to go. Basically, they, they never get a chance in world rugby. The rugby Europe competition is very poor. And Georgia were the sort of team that England at their best, or indeed in any sort of reasonable game, would have put away by miles. Then he put 40 on them. So I think if, if there's pressure on Ireland, I think there's pressure on England because England has still only given one great performance in the last year. And what a great performance it was. But I think um, it, it was a PR thing which happened after the game, which we all got suckered in by. Do you think people got suckered in by that? I, I don't think people um, have much time for Eddie's excuses and that. And um, England's one um, decent performance of the year, was that the Ireland game you're talking about? No, I was talking about the game in the World Cup when they beat New Zealand. Oh, I see. You see, I think people forget that England were actually pretty good when they, um, when they finally got going in the Six Nations. They were very good against Ireland and they were, they were pretty good against Wales. I think there was both sort of... Uh, Slotty, when they finally got going, when they finally got going, you're supposed to come out fighting in the Six Nations. England should be judged on, on, a, on a grand slam. If they don't win it, it's not a good season. There are too many excuses. So don't talk about getting into the Six Nations once they got started. It starts on day one and England weren't there. Well, I completely agree they weren't they weren't there on day one, but I just think you've got to take a broader view. So they completely cocked up against France. Then they play they beat Scotland in that monsoon, so you can't really judge them, but they won the game. And then they had two good performances. They were a team on the rise. So um the sadness is that they then sort of uh, fell back to earth in time to play Italy for the exciting Six Nations conclusion two weeks ago. That that, that wasn't so good, but we have to remember with all these changes Eddie makes, all the 
the stuff about uh, changing positions, backs and forwards, and all that sort of stuff. When it came to when it came when it came to the World Cup final, he did not sort out the one position where the match was won and lost, even if he'd had four years to do so. So maybe a few less changes, a few less excuses, a few less outbursts of public relations flannel, and they might get somewhere. Okay, well, <laughs> that's that's not going to change. So I think we can expect expect more um, public relations flannel. Peter, from your from from your point of view in, in the Ireland team, do you, do you think that uh, Farrell is generally getting somewhere? Is is heading in the right direction with it? At the start of of the autumn, there was as ever the questions around the halfbacks and should he stick with or should he or should he move on? Johnny Sexton is now is he now going to definitely unavailable for uh, for the weekend? That hasn't been confirmed yet, Slotty. Um, so we are well. Certainly, I I'm expecting that he won't be uh, ready to go. He did say after the game he was still hopeful, but you know he's going to say that anyway, isn't he? Uh, a hamstring. Even though he walked off the pitch, I would have thought eight days is too short a, a recovery time. You don't want to you don't want to waste a, a substitute if you like by by going in with somebody on on one wing. So I'm expecting that. He's going to have to throw in an inexperienced uh, 10. That could be Billy Burns, who made his debut on Friday. Of course, former England under-20 player and brother of Freddie. Or Ross Byrne, uh, who's also fairly inexperienced, but he was the backup uh, when the Six Nations for the first part of the Six Nations. And do you think, Pete, that that is a change force, a likely change force on Ireland that uh, leaves them dramatically weaker? Or, or the, the the other narrative is Ireland have to move on. Johnny Sex is not what he used to be, so maybe it ain't such a bad thing. Yeah, there's there's a, an element of, of there's definitely uh, some truth to to that. That um, at some stage they're going to have to get on with life after Johnny. Johnny would see that as being circa 2025. Uh, that begins. <laughs> Yeah, the, I think the unfortunate thing is that it, if Billy Burns, say, has to start on, on Saturday, um, that probably means that Conor Murray should come in at nine because you don't want to go in with two inexperienced halfbacks yeah. for, for a game of this importance and this, yeah, this, this significance. Uh, because Jemson Gibson Park was one of the, was one of the positives from last, win, uh, last uh, Friday night. One of Ireland's Kiwis, uh, there were a couple of them, on show on Friday, James Lowe obviously excelled, but Jemison Gibson Park gave them something which they've lacked with Conor Murray recently, which was a bit of tempo. He even had the odd dart, but he put some pace on the game. And I suppose his presence, you know, in, in the in the in the near future should help Ireland uh, Farrell's Ireland play a slightly less rook based game under under Joe Schmidt. Uh, they became very collision-oriented, and they weren't winning the collisions against teams like England. That was a bit of a problem. So Mike Cat is now the attack coach, and there were, there were a couple of moments on, on Friday which reflected well on his influence. And we had one uh, one moment in particular against Italy uh, during the during the Five Six Nations where you had a player like, like Peter O'Mahony actually offloading in, in contact, which would suggest that Ireland are, are trying to move on in terms of the way they play the game. Whether they are are actually achieving anything. It's still too it's still too soon to say because they didn't go so well in Paris. You can't really read too much into the victory over Italy and you can't read too much into the Wales game either because Wales are in such a such a such a state. So that's why England 
the England game means so much for Ireland because it's a, it's, it's a means by which we can measure whether Farrell is actually having any positive influence. Oh, oh and can I ask Peter, uh, uh, the two new players, or re- reasonably new to me, I thought Gibson Park was added a new dimension. That he took some of the attention away from from uh, Sexton, and I mean that in a positive way. I thought he was very clever uh, the, around the fringes. He was like someone like uh, Dan Robson in the way he was able to select options. The person who didn't impress me at all was low on the wing. He, he looked he looked ponderous, a little bit overexcited, and frankly, he looked a little bit like a werewolf when he had his his, um, his headband off. He just didn't impress me as anything other than a banger. But that's on first uh, sight. Is he? Has he got other uh, sides to his game? Well, Saracens definitely didn't make him look so hot in the in the, the Champions Cup quarterfinal. They went after him in the air a bit, and he didn't look so hot that day. But I think in general, his performances for Leinster have been outstanding. And you're the only person that I've heard actually say a negative thing about his performance on Friday. A lot of people over here were were quite uh, excited by it, Jonesy. But there you go. Jones has been pretty negative about everything so far today. We, we're going to get onto the bits he likes in a minute. I believe it's called journalism when I last looked, Slotty. <laughs> Let's get on to what, you, what you're happy about, Jonesy. Did, um, how many times have you watched the, uh, the All Blacks-Argentina game? Have you got it on repeat in your, in your breakfast room? I, I've only, only watched it once. I loved the bit where Pablo Matera uh, had that exchange with the referee when Pablo, the great man, said um, was warned for getting a bit overexcited and uh, Pablo said, well, one of my teammates was kicked and, um, and the ref said, you're the captain. And he pointed at his badge and said, uh, you know, I'm playing for my country here. And fair play to the ref, he, uh, he, he copped it. I think uh, New Zealand's record is, is, is suddenly become by their standards pretty poor. But I think uh, where that performance came from by Argentina with no warm-up games uh, was A, incredible, and B, makes you wonder why you have four warm-up games for the World Cup and everybody wants a warm-up game. (laughs) Why not get out there and and play rugby? I I just thought they were terrific. They made a rod for their own back because now they'll be really targeted by uh, the other two teams in the Rugby Championship. But it was just just brilliant. Uh, New Zealand copped it. At least they're not blamed the referee like they normally do. And um, I just thought it was tremendous. We tend to enjoy it when um, the media reaction to, to, to the All Blacks losing in, in New Zealand. One of the headlines I particularly enjoy was humiliated world media react to All Blacks meltdown. So I read that story with interest. And that's a headline in relation to uh, one single tweet sent by you, Steve, in which you said, you said it was time for the All Blacks to be relegated to, to Tier 2 rugby. <laughs> it's a close one between the Americans and the New Zealanders for the utter failure to grasp irony or anything <laughs> remotely. It's a close one. But um, I didn't actually mean that about the tier two. I, it was, I know it was it, a joke. I just loved it. I love the reaction. Also predictable, but but um, maybe reasonable, is is the questions of the coach, future of the coaches. Should Ben Foster uh, hang on to his job? Uh, that, that's being debated. Just as Wayne Pivak's future, as Pete, you mentioned, is being um, talked about in Wales. Uh, these are coaches only a year into the job. Is, is it too early for that sort of stuff? I don't think so. As I understand it, uh, Ian Foster was only given a two-year gig. Correct. Yeah. So that, that wasn't exactly a huge vote of confidence. He looked like a man in trouble. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder what those 
those coaches in the Southern Hemisphere think about having a television camera in their in their box, in the coach's box. Because it's so intrusive. But it was it gave us a fantastic moment, didn't it, when the RG's coach called Mario, Super Mario, had to turn away to hide his emotion. I thought oh, that it was, was lovely that, wasn't it? Mm. It was a lovely moment. I mean everybody focused on the on the Matera the the eyes on him when he when he made that steal at the at the end. It was fantastic. But meanwhile Ian Foster was looking on grimly with a sort of a film of sweat on his forehead. With regard to um, Wayne Pivak, guys, I think everybody knows that um, Dave Rennie was the first choice and um, was was basically, Wales were very heavily involved in, in bringing him over to the Northern Hemisphere. One of the Glasgow uh, dips in form coincided with a quite a rare but uh, very welcome for them um, rising form of the Scarlets and uh, with with um, Pivak in charge. I think he's a decent coach, but but he was never the first choice. He became so in a real short term move. Pivak is is way way smaller than the other problems they've got. If he was the only problem, they'd be doing really well. But the Welsh rugby union is an absolute shambles. It's been taken over by the community game, and no one's got any experience whatsoever in. The professional game there. They've lost uh, Gareth Davis, who was the, the best official they've ever had, or at least since Vernon Pugh. They've lost Martin Phillips, who was a tremendous chief executive. Ryan Jones has gone too. They've got a part-time chief executive who appears to want the main job, which I think would be a bad thing. And it is chaotic there. And people tell me, I wrote a piece in the Welsh edition this week, people tell me it's worse than I said in my feature. And my God, in the feature, I've just outlined some horrendous things. So you could be talking about a decade before they get anywhere near the levels they were under Warren Gatland. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The sadness of the weekend, the real sadness of the weekend was... We failed to see uh, Fiji in the Autumn Nations Cup against France. I think that probably would have been the uh, best game of, uh, of that competition. We'd like to see more uh, Pacific Island players, or, or, the, or we see plenty of Pacific Island players in, uh, in our club games. We'd like to see some proper backing for the Pacific Island national teams. So, Jonesy, you've been talking to Dan Leo about a new film, yeah? Yeah, we've done like spoke this morning. Uh, he was uh, sweating in, I think it was 30-odd degrees uh, of, of, of weather in Brisbane. But Dan uh, has done this brilliant film, uh, no budget whatsoever. He's been all over the world at basically his own expense. It's called Oceans Apart. Let's have a listen to that now, then. Today we've got a first. We're going to be in at the start of a brand-new film. It's called Oceans Apart. 
Greed, Betrayal and Pacific Rugby. It was made by Dan Leo. Dan played for Wasp, Bordeaux, Perpignan, London Irish, London Welsh, and of course, Manu Samoa. Dan, did I leave any clubs out you played for there? Queens of Reds, I started at. Uh, probably too many to mention, Steve. I know your film, Oceans Apart, was made with no investment, no sugar daddy. What was the thinking behind it? And I, as I understand, knowing you well, that it's been an ambition of yours for years. Initially, the uh, you know the no investment, no money behind it wasn't wasn't the plan. Uh, we we went to a few uh, of the bigger channels and said, look, this is the plan. Uh, would you, would you commission um, such a film? And you know the answer was from, and I'm not going to mention any broadcasters. Was that uh, it was too controversial, uh, possibly, you know, um, with some of those broadcasters wanting to um, put have the, you know make bids for the rights for for international rugby. Um, it was just too scary a proposition for them. So we had to do it uh, basically self-funded, which is okay. You know, integrity of funding is, is key, as you know, Jonesy. So, uh, you know, it was important that this was the, the Pacific Island rugby story told by Pacific Islanders. So that's the way it turned out. Um, yeah, three years in the making. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're ready to launch, uh, ready to, 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 to publish that uh, in a couple of days' time. Dan, um, it's a very interesting statistic. Is it that 30% of players in the World Cup were of Pacific Island extraction, but excluding the three Pacific Island teams? That's right. Um, and, and, you know, on, on top of that, uh, 25% of all professional players these days are of Pacific Island heritage. And, you know, one of the other key stats that I wasn't aware of before we made the film is that uh, Pacific Islanders are 30 times more likely than any other uh, people group to become professional rugby players. So uh, it was a great uh, chance to, to celebrate some of those uh, those, those wonderful statistics, but um, as you said earlier, um, you know some of the stats uh, that uh, that were laid before us in terms of the way that we, you know, we're treated uh, aren't so great. You've contributed. Uh, the Pacific Island teams have contributed to reinforce other teams, Australia, England, or, or almost all of them, but have never been really allowed to flourish in their own right, despite their magnificent strength. And I think basically one of the things that hurts all fans of the game is that Fiji, Tonga and Samoa could absolutely revolutionise the world scene and especially the World Cup should they be allowed to prepare properly and retain some of their players. I mean, how does, does that, will that ever sit easily with you and your uh, Pacific Island colleagues? Plain and simply no, Stephen. I think it's, um, you know, we're, we're the big underachievers in uh, international rugby when you look at some of those other statistics that we that we mentioned uh, you know we've got um, as an organization that, that I'm CEO of uh, we have 600 members you know 600 fully professional uh, players around the world that we look after their interests of you know with that sort of um, player pool uh, you'd expect uh, at least one of the Pacific Islands to have made a, uh, a semi-final in a rugby world cup uh, by this stage, um, the reality is, is that we haven't. And uh, probably the sadder, sadder reality and the harsher reality is that we won't unless uh, a few things change. And that's what we really wanted to highlight through the documentary and really try and get some, uh, you know, raise the awareness on, on on how we can improve, how we can, you know, how the system needs to change for us to really re- reach out and realise our potential. There are so many ways in which they, in my opinion, they do you down and try and keep you in a, in a box, Dan. Um, one of them is, um, for instance, um, Twickenham Gate Receipts. The last time Samoa played there, there was even uh, talk in your camp of, a, of, of refusing to play because the, the basis of it is Twickenham takes millions of pounds on gate receipts on the back of the Samoan team or whoever goes there. The, 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 ma- the match was a sellout. Samoa got absolutely nothing from it. 
The idea is that um, on a reciprocal match in Samoa, uh, it would be reversed and Samoa would keep their own gate receipts, which are actually puny by comparison. But the, where it all falls down in an absolutely scandalous way is that there's never a reciprocal game. You played 10 years for Samoa. You only played one tier one nation at home, and that was Scotland, just once. I mean, how can that be a reciprocal agreement? It's not, is it, Stephen? Um, you know, and it's the, um, you know, I guess, you know, is a, is a pretty outdated agreement, um, and one and one that needs to change. Um, the, 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 the matter of fact is, as well is that, uh, you know, if, if we were to have more tier one nations come and visit us, it still wouldn't change the situation because, uh, you know, as, as we point out in the documentary, um, in 2015 when the All Blacks came for the first time ever, I might add to to Samoa, we lost, you know, the Samoan Rugby Union lost out on a million a million dollars, uh, which is a heck of a lot to to lose out on. Um, no matter who you're playing, so um, so just merely visiting um, under the current agreement isn't isn't good enough. We need to be pushing for a uh, profit share, a fair profit share of uh, what's being generated by the, the tier one nations. And Dan, uh, during your travels, you, you do uh, you're never accusing outsiders of being the big problem or the whole problem because you meet some pretty uh, tough customers. Uh, for instance, your own prime minister. Uh, who's also chairman of the Samoan Rugby Union. I mean, I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, call for you, I think, in the film to be uh, put in a mental home, which I thought was very supportive for everything that you've done. But is it not true that government intervention and interference in all three unions has held you back? And actually, given world rugby, probably an excuse not to back you up because they can always say that the administration is poor. Yeah, exactly, Stephen. It's a, it's a real catch twenty two there, and it was a real, I guess, a, a turning point in the documentary. And uh, you know, as a as a player, that was always the issue that I saw was that you know we had you know at times I remember one time our prime minister flying in into the country we were playing against at four o'clock in the morning the night, the night before we were due to play a test, uh, waking the whole team up, making a speech and pulling two or three players out and <laughs> replacing them with, you know, the, well, a few of the sevens boys who had just won the uh, HSB sevens circuit in 2010. And I always, you know, that was, it was easy to, to hang your hat on that and say, look, this is, this is the problem, you know, without giving too much about the documentary, you know, it was a turning point going back to the islands. Um, and it was, it was important that we, that we did it in a way that we didn't go with preconceived ideas there, and actually learning that um, you know there is a there is a, a there is a tougher uh, situation here, and um, the reliance you know the system at the moment has has made our unions reliant on on government funding uh, and pol- political interference, and that's that's a, that's a tougher you know phenomenon. So yeah, a lot of, you know we we probably raised a few more questions than we answered through the documentary, but um, you know it's. It, goes to the point that there's no clear answers when it comes to government interference on the flip side of that Stephen we can't um, not look at it you know we've got to we've got to be better in the terms of the way that our unions are being administered um, particularly in countries like Samoa and Tonga where we don't have the the player base um, that Fiji does we don't have the tourism that Fiji pulls so it's you know it's, it's going to be a lot harder. Then uh, the, the, the whole thing gets off to quite an explosive start when you reveal that you were, you were dropped from the Samoan team for your part in exposing the corruption and that it's well known that hundreds of thousands of dollars went missing, some of which was, was given by public subscription. I mean, you know, the, the, the sight of Samoan players pushing a wheelbarrow around uh, to, to get donations, very touching, but also infuriating. 
in the end, uh, there's quite a dramatic scene where you, you, you confront the Prime Minister and eventually the two of you come to some sort of rapprochement. Would that, would that be fair? Yeah, I guess so, Stephen. You know, I suppose in a traditional sense of a documentary, you always want to, you know, you want to set up a villain and you really want to hammer them home when you get the chance to meet them. But um, in a cultural context like Samoa, it was um, it was very different. In reality, it was very different. You know, I had to go in there very respectful and I am very respectful just for the, for the cultural climate. You know, our, our culture is, is all all based around having that, um, you know, that uh, adherence and and, uh, and and respect for authority. Just before I meet the Prime Minister, I actually speak to my dad, who reinforce in the documentary, who reinforces the fact that you know you've got to you've got to you've got to do things along the line here. But actually, the fact coming out of there, you know, going in there as as enemies and actually coming out of there, and him, I think the last question, he, you know, thing he says to me is, you look, you know, any way you can help me, Dan, is in getting Samoa back up there is it will be massively appreciated. Is goes to show, um, you know, just what the challenges are, Stephen, and uh, they're not as, yeah, probably not some of the ones that you'd expect. There's some beautiful shots, uh, Dan, when you go to Tonga, but again, infuriatingly, we hear from uh, Oceans Apart that there is an offshore academy, professional academy in Tonga, which is not there to to have any interest in Tongan rugby, but which takes away up to 40 uh, promising youngsters to other countries. Then we have the situation in Fiji where Pacific Rugby Welfare, and uh, I hope uh, I'd like to say as well, the Sunday Times exposed the chairman of the Fijian Rugby Union, who was uh, a military man, Francis Keane, was allowing rapists out of jail to play for his uh, sevens team at the ver- in the very week when the Fijian women got together for a high-performance camp. Well, you couldn't make it up. You couldn't make these things up, surely. No, you couldn't, you couldn't Steve. And um, these were the harsh realities that we had to um, confront uh, in the documentary for to, to have any credibility, you know, for us to be asking the tough questions of other organisations, other unions, you know, the tier one uh, unions, we have to, con- we had to uh, be willing to look introspectively at ourselves. And uh, the reality is there is that we just haven't been good enough in terms of our uh, own administration, the, the stuff that we've allowed in, into our unions, but also, you know, the, the fact that, um, you know, World Rugby does need to, uh, you know, to probably have a, a bit of a, um, more of a say when it comes to, you know, the, the formation of the of those unions themselves, and and um, sure. so yeah, it's, it's sort of two pronged, uh, Stephen. As I said, um, you know, went went in very very mindful and, and thinking, you know, one eyed in terms of corruption in our unions was the was the sole problem and the, probably the main problem, and uh, yeah, um, came out the other end uh, thinking, geez, we've, we've got a whole lot more issues to to try and uh, face here. Pacific Rugby Welfare is a huge organisation. Not, it's not actually officially recognised by World Rugby, which is a scandal. But, you know, you've you've done some great work. There's a very moving interview with the great Rupaini Thauthanabuka, who most people would agree is one of the greatest attacking players the game has seen. Now, Rupaini's been all around the world and he, he found it difficult because his roots were rooted to his village in Fiji. And basically, Rupaini is now probably not in a good way or not in a good state is he no um you know he's a, he's a, he's he's probably the first to admit steve that you know he he squandered his small fortune that he, he amassed um but um you know i think one of the key elements to the film particularly in the first sort of half an hour of watching is this sort of 
you know, painting the picture of, you know, sort of this and asking the question whether some of these these players have been exploited through their uh, their careers and, and their lives. And, um, you know, definitely in Rapini's case, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic one. You know, he um, not many people know that in the final three years of his career, he was actually playing for free at Toulouse when he went there, when, when, when most players... Uh, earning, you know, their, their their best money and really saving. Well, he actually lost everything in that final three or four years by signing a, a pre-contract at uh, Racing Metro and then pulling out of that. So he actually lost his house and was playing for free for the last three years. So it's a really sad sh- situation. We like to think that if he had been uh, advised otherwise, he might have, you know, been uh, in a pretty comfortable, he should have been in a pretty comfortable position now. So again, it's, it's hard to say, you know, is that exploitation or is that the player's fault? But, um, you know, the lack of support for these players um, and, and the decision-making process. These are, you've got to remember these are guys that are coming straight from villages with, you know, maybe one primary school in the village and, and no no further education after that. We need to be mindful of that. And I guess the, the bigger picture around the, the documentary is actually providing some of the solutions. And I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head, Stephen. That's one of them is this um, widening the support network and actually positioning ourselves to be part of that solution in terms of, um, you know, uh, the, the profits of the game going back and, and reinvesting and actually supporting these players through that uh, through that rise. Uh, well, I think uh, look, anyone listening to it, I could say, would be infuriated. There are many other examples in the film of people basically that you've rescued, you've brought home when when they were penniless, and uh, you know these are the three great rugby nations. Uh, Dan, you do sit down in the end with uh, World Rugby and Brad Gosper. It'd be lovely if they would get rid of the one country rule so that people like Charles Piatow and so many others who played a couple of games for the All Blacks, quite rightly, because it was financially sound for them, could come back and play. The great Inga Twigamala did so when he was allowed and said it was just fantastic. There appeared to be no interest from World Rugby to pass that no-brainer measure to let people come back to their original nation. First, it's probably, you know, worth saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to, to Brett Gosper, you know, as CEO of World Rugby for coming on, on and, and speaking and, and putting his points across in, in the documentary. It's something he didn't have to do. It probably would have been uh, um, easier for them to to ignore us as an organisation than as a documentary. But, you know, he came on and he, he gave someone else opinions about where the sport's at and uh, the, the reliance on and, and, you know, the lack of buy-in by, you know, the tier one nations to really um, administer change. But yeah, that uh, eligibility one for me, uh, Stephen, is, 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 is an easy one for the tier one nations because it wouldn't cost a thing. You know, changing a few laws doesn't cost them anything. A lot of the other ones do, you know, when we're talking about profit share, um, particularly amidst the, the challenges of COVID now, it's 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 difficult to ask, uh, um, you know, even the bigger nations uh, to share when, you know, when they're, you know, when they're having to release... Uh, <laughs> You know, if we want to strengthen the game, you know, we've got to look at other options. Um, you know, Frank Bunce says this as well. He was, he was one of those guys who was privileged to, you know, be able to play for Samoa and and the All Blacks. And, you know, talks about the privilege that that was and, uh, you know, being able to give come and give back to these smaller nations that have next to nothing is, um, is vital. We need to be able to allow these players to come back and, and give, you know, whether it's at the start or the ends of their careers or in their prime, you know, a guy like Charles Piertel, who's been sitting on the, you know, outside of the World Cup for his prime five years of his career is just, you know, it's, it boggles the mind, you know, um, sure. and, um, you know, we need to we need to look at other options. Oceans apart, greed, betrayal and Pacific rugby. Dan, how would uh, Ruck listeners, how would they get hold of it? Uh, it'll be released within uh, the next couple of days online. It'll be available on Vimeo and uh, Amazon later this week. So yeah, look out uh, for the, for the posts and enjoy.
Yeah, guys, I think there's some of the points that Dan brought up there. I mean, you know, he's the the the, the, uh, the threats he had to endure and all that sort of stuff are pretty, pretty bad. And uh, the way that uh, Thofa Nabuka is now on his uppers, etc. But one thing that they could do, in which uh, is that um, players like Charles Piatow and, and many others, they want to try and get rid of this one nation rule. Uh, people like Inga Twigamalo, uh, we heard about there, did play and so did Frank Bunce. He was able to play for two teams. And it would give them a, a great leg up if people like Pietau could go back. But it, it's a great idea. It costs nothing, as Dan says, but uh, it would help enormously. I'm a supporter of that. I think um, you should only be allowed to go back to tier two countries. If you had a, a break, a, it doesn't have to be that long a break, and a Charles Pietau could go and play for his nation, his home nation again, then I think that would be outstanding. And it would also bring more to World Cups and to... And to autumn series and it would help the game grow in those countries because their nations would do better i think it's i don't i don't really think it's uh but it should be a matter of debate we've got uh, another round of uh, of international rugby this weekend but we've also got the uh, the premiership back starts on friday night it starts with quins at home against exeter sale at home against northampton uh, obviously these teams will be without their international players uh, they'll be struggling for exposure. Well, they'll be on uh, the games will be covered on on BT Sport, but um, there'll be uh, um, more attention given to the international games, as, as is the, normally the case when this happens. This is all another example of the game having to react to COVID in order to keep itself going. Jonesy, the, the, the Premiership season, do you think we'll start to sort of get more thrilled about it once the international games are out of the way? Well, the thing is, it is a proper bona fide competition, which which exists. So that's that. It's got that in its favour. You, you must have a huge question mark about the tiny closed season, though. And and you know Exeter. I mean, I should tell you who I feel sorry for most, and that's Exeter. Usually, when you win a title, or especially when you win a double, you have three months of uh, of revelling in it and going on holiday and having a few drinks and loving it with your family and friends. I mean, they've got to go straight back up on a Friday night to play in, Lo- in London. And uh, even their um, endurance will be tested by that. I just think that, again, it shows um, the, the, the way the season is just completely collapsed on each other. Uh, you get test matches when the uh, we should be looking at the Premiership as a one-off and really looking at it. And uh, just and uh, it's just too soon for me, too dangerous for the players, and I hope hope they all come through. Um, and the other thing is, is what, what surprised me as well was that uh, the England women's team had a great win live on TV on uh, Saturday against uh, France, and yet on the same day, the Premier 15s, there was a round of that. So it looks like the girls are, are also stuck in the uh, sardine season just like the men are. So, look, good luck to the teams. Love to think that fans get back out there and uh, be nice if, um, if someone comes through from the back. And looking forward to seeing London Irish play at the new ground. It's a lovely stadium. They're a great club and um, looking forward to seeing Blair Cowan and his guys out there for that. So that'll be something. Any bolters? Is it about time that uh, that Harlequins finally put a run together and that Paul Gustard shows that he can coach a decent team? I'm not saying anything about Harlequins because, as you know, our producer is a big Harlequin. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about it. I don't we'll say think, something nice about it then. I don't think they've recruited that well, and I think they're a revolution in its early, early stages. I don't think I don't think they'll be bolter now. I just want to uh, just spend a couple of minutes discussing. We are from the rugby media. We take great 
pleasure and it's a privilege to travel around the world and, and, and meet meet other rugby writers from around the world. Now, over the weekend, a, a man called Greg Groudon passed away. Um, I imagine that, that many of our listeners will, will know who he is or might have read his books or read his copy from uh, various Australian newspapers and websites. He was, I think, one of their great rugby writers. He passed away at age only 60 from cancer. Peter, you knew Greg pretty well? Yeah, I got to know him pretty well because um, we both had a love of uh, cricket as well as, as rugby. He wrote quite a few books about players from the golden era, post-war the Bradman era, but he didn't write necessarily about the likes of Bradman. He wrote, wrote about shadowy kind of um, peripheral characters, but interesting characters like uh, uh, Fleetwood Smith and Jack Fingleton and guys like that. He was a lover of Australian sport, but at the same time, as Jonesy eloquently put it, he was a bit of an iconoclast. So he wrote through a period where uh, Australia, the Wallabies were winning World Cups and he reported on all that. But at no point was he ever fawning. At no point was he ever a cheerleader. He didn't give a toss what people thought of his criticisms. And um, that made him endearing. He could be a bit cantankerous, um, a bit like Jonesy, I suppose. But he was uh, he was great company, great sense of humour. I feel sorry, for his, obviously, for his, his nearest and dearest, but also from his generation of, uh, of Australian hacks. They're great guys, they, um, the, you know, the, the Jim Tuckers and Latterly. Uh, before uh, Peter Jenkins in the old days, you know they they were um, they were great hosts when whenever we we toured Australia. We'll try and finish on a brighter note. There was a great game uh, at the weekend, not in this hemisphere, but we'll 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 go to uh, to God and Goddess of the week. Um, I imagine that we'll be mainly focused there. Pete, oh, I'm going to be accused of being parochial because uh, I thought I thought everybody would go for Pablo Matera. So, <laughs> so the guy that I, I chose actually was uh, was Kalen Doris, simply because uh, people on your side of the pond might be aware of him. He's only twenty two, but there was only, there were two moments really, which uh, from Friday night from the Ireland's game against Wales, which would have made punters stand up out of their seats if you know, were punters there. One of them involved James Lowe, but then the other one was uh, was from Kalen Doris, second half. Uh, he blocked down a kick by the, the Welsh scrum half, Gareth Davis. And then as the ball rolled towards the, the right-hand corner, Doris chased after it, dived on it, and scooped it back in field for Keane Healy. And now it doesn't, you know, I don't do it any justice there. But it was just a moment of, uh, of inspiration, uh, a moment that reminded you of why kids play rugby in the first place. And I think that, I know if, if the Lions tour goes ahead, Warren Gatlin will want big loose forwards to take on the Springboks. And Caelan Doris isn't the biggest loose forward out there. But he has he has something a bit a bit special and he may well be in the mix come the end of the season. So uh so he's my god of the week. Thank you for that parochial contribution. Jonesy? I don't think anyone would accuse Peter of being parochial or uh, his partner in crime Brendan Fanning. I fact I I would uh, love the performance of Andrew Porter up front because he's never been the number one. Uh, he's always been behind Furlong. And uh, I thought he had his day. I thought he was uh, he was tremendous. Uh, Wales were complaining about him, but you shouldn't complain. You should be better. And I thought he was tremendous. But also, um, I find Jack Willis such a lovely bloke. I, I was delighted to see him on the field. 
Um, he really is a lovely bloke from the lovely family, and and he's from a, a real rugby club, Reading Abbey. Even though um, we never lost to Reading Abbey when I was with the Mighty Maids, but Pablo Matera, I cannot go past that. I love Argentina rugby. Uh, it's good when the All Blacks lose because they it, it brings them down to earth a bit. So Pablo Matera, uh, my God of the week, but with Andrew Porter, a special mention. Okay, very nice. I'll go with Pablo Matera. I don't think any, any more needs to be said. This was The Ruck. Thank you very, very much for listening. We'll be back next week as ever. Please uh, recommend and pass the word on to your friends. Thank you, Steve, and thank you, Peter. See you next week. Yeah, cheer up, lads, as well. Bye.